You are listening to Talking Up, an interview show dedicated to authors, journalists, and writers working on issues of social justice, equity, and the systems that make up the nonprofit sector. Guests are talking about their writing and the research and what drives their work. Listeners will have the opportunity to widen their lens and figure out where we might go from here. Welcome to Talking Up with host Gail Picco, Editor-in-Chief of the Charity Report. Author Katerina Vermette is a Métis writer from Treaty 1 Territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her first book, North End Love Songs, won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry, and her novel, The Break, won the 2017 Amazon.ca First Novel Award. She is the author of The Seven Teachings Stories. She is also the author of a four-part graphic series, A Girl Called Echo. Echo Desjardins is a 13-year-old Métis girl adjusting to a new home and school and is struggling with loneliness while separated from her mother. Then, an ordinary day in Mr. B's history class turns extraordinary. During Mr. B's lectures, Echo finds herself transported to other times and places, like a time traveler. The last book in the series, Road Allowance, has just been published. Welcome to Talking Up, Katerina. Echo Desjardins is an extraordinary messenger of Métis history. Where did she come from? I, I always kind of teeter on the edge of YA with, with my adult novels, and I do some picture books and stuff. So um, I really like teenagers. And Echo was really inspired by um, the teenagers in my life at the time. Um, my two daughters were teenagers at the time. We had a foster child who was also a teenager. They just kind of held it all in, inside of them. And they were often with their hoodies on and their headphones in. And, you know, um, and that's the kind of kid I was. You know, I was very much a kid who was shy, quiet, did ha- had no idea what was inside of me, um, what I was capable of. So I really wanted to make someone quiet. And when the opportunity of a graphic novel came up, it seemed the best way to show that that quiet strength. So when we meet Echo, she has um, she is separated from her mom, and we don't go into the. I never go into the details of that. Her mom is seeking treatment for whatever she requires treatment for, um, and Echo is with her mom or with her auntie. So she's still in a new place. She's about to go to a new school. Um, she would very much still be like knowing what I know about the system. She'd be very much you know the foster system involved but luckily she has a family member so she does have the the, the strength of her family what, what's the impact on echo and her mom of not knowing uh well, their history i think unfortunately that's a really common experience for a lot of different marginalized nations a lot of different indigenous nations across turtle island um we grow up and, and for me as a metis person and member of the metis nation i was very fortunate that my father, my grandfather, my uncles had done that work. And and really, um, we never were disconnected from that history. I I grew up knowing who I was and who I came from. Um, And it wasn't until I got older that I realized what a gift that was, because so many people are disconnected when, especially in in something like the Métis history, which is a post-contact nation that is built on um, from the original children of for, for traders who are European and indigenous mothers. Um, so there's there's a certain blending in 
that can often happen. You know, we refer to it as, as passing. If you can pass for white, then you pass for white. And I think that's the story in many Métis families that people pass for white, that they forgot their history. This was a, our nation was very much disenfranchised after uh, the resistances in the 1800s. And there was a repeated and constant attempts at furthering that disenfranchisement as much as possible. So of course, people who could pass and, and walk around in the world without being associated with that, um, what was considered negative history, they did. So um, so for Echo and her mom and, and her auntie, I think that they have some idea of what's going on, and that, but they are educate themselves as the book goes along. And her mother was very much an instrument in this and through her own healing, um, whatever it is she's going through, her mom actually takes it upon herself to look into the history and grow. So the whole family is growing as as much as Echo is learning about her history from her Indigenous teacher, Mr. B, and, um, and, and books that she's able to. And then, of course, the time traveling, you know, which is the magical part. You know, she just gets to go right back there and experience life as it was 200 years ago. And throughout the series, the four-part series, um we it's really quite interwoven with the um history of louis riel and uh his leadership so what place does riel hold in metis history <laughs> i think it totally depends on the metis person <laughs> and there- you know, we're opinionated, you know, we're opinionated I've people. heard, uh, you know, stubbornness mules. Um, for me, my personal, um, relationship. Yeah, we can call it that with, with L'Oreal has, has been complicated. I remember as a kid, like I, I grew up with, with Macy's stories and resistance stories. So, um, as a kid, I always idolized Luriel and I thought he was like this, this hero guy. And, um, here in, in Winnipeg, um, formerly on the legislative grounds, we had this kind of grotesque statue of Luriel where he looked all twisted. Um, and I remember seeing that as a child um, and being really affected by that. And then hearing the, because it wasn't true to my vision of who I thought he right. was. Um, and then hearing stories that he was crazy and he is like, you know, just dismiss everything he did. He was silly and he was just a pawn or whatever. Um so then I think I, I went through kind of an angry period of that, of, of, of him and feeling like, oh, he's just, uh, you know, um, overhyped or whatever, you know. Um, and it was really the process um, of going back through that, that history. And, I, and, and part of the reason I loved writing this series is because I got to do such a deep dive into the history. So as much as I loved and knew Métis history, like there's so much in history and there's so many details that you can go in. Um, and I really did a deep dive into Luriel because um, um, he, he, for better or worse, and I think for better, um, he is very interwoven into the fabric of, of, of so much of the golden, you know, of, of Métis history. He was born into the golden age of Red River Métis history. He was instrumental in both resistances of the 1800s. Um, and then he was executed for treason, like the only person in Canada who's ever been executed for treason um, for crimes he didn't actually commit or whatever. Um, so there's so much there. And, and Luriel is such a fascinating, deeply fascinating person and, and figure. And 
absolutely integral into not only Métis Nation history, but like this province, you know, much of what he um, helped to write, and he was a leader of the of, of a group of people, but he was very much a member of that group of people, much that they wrote um, in the resistance of 1870, the Métis Bill of Rights, ha- is has been used into the Manitoba Act, which helped Manitoba become a part of Canada. So he is very much a founding parent of this country as a whole, and this province specifically. Um, and much of what has been said about him that is negative is very much untrue, and much of it is exaggerated and based on falsehoods that were perpetuated by the very people who wanted to kill him and eventually did kill him. So um, there's a lot, there's so much, um, and I could talk about Lyra Real at nauseum forever because I think he's brilliant and tortured and he's you know fabulous in all the ways people can be fabulous intensely human you're the writer of the book I mean the illustrator Scott is incredible and I had the opportunity to look at some early galleys that weren't colored yet Mm -hmm. so I saw the um uh, the the impact that uh, Donovan's work as the colorist had as well. Because initially you go, okay, author, that's you. Scott, he's the illustrator, a colorist, like really, you know. <laughs> I love coloring. I should do that. <laughs> but yeah, but when I saw the illustrations in black and white line drawings and then the coloring, it was extraordinary. It was like they someone just took them by the scruff of the neck right off the page and made them alive. It, what a contribution. Where did you find these um, these guys? And did you know them before or how, how did you hook up with them? Um, I knew I knew of them before. I knew mm-hmm. them through Highwater Press, Portage and Maine. And, and right. that's frequently for those, um, you know, budding artists and graphic novelists. I mean, that's often what happens is you as a writer, I have absolutely no artistic ability whatsoever. Um, so you as a writer, you're coming in and you're writing the script and making the story. Um, and publishers tend to work with illustrators and colorists that they really, really love and, and rely on. And um, I knew Scott Henderson from his work with David Alexander Robertson. He's done, he's worked extensively with him. And of course his own work of the Chronicles of Era. And um, I just loved everything that he did. And I knew that I wanted, I didn't want Echo to be stylized. I wanted her to be like rooted in that realism. I really wanted to see when we, um, when she went back in time, I wanted to see the space and I wanted to see the nature (laughs) and the, the way the world, what this part of the world was back in the day. I wanted long panoramic shots of everything. Um, and then of course we needed it to be colored. You know, we knew right away that we needed it to be colored because we, because there was almost a wizard of Oz feeling between, um, echo in her contemporary times and echo when she goes back in time, the shots are literally wider. Um, everything, like if we were working in film, echo would go from almost like a grainy, um, black and white to like a 4k whenever she goes back in time. Right. Um, and that was that like Donovan just knew that and knew how to do that and just like, you know, just ran with everything. So 
Um, Echo actually in contemporary times starts off with very muted colors, with very blue colors. She kind of mimics the seasons in that way because she starts off in kind of a fall winter and then ends up at the end, she's brighter too in her contemporary time. But throughout all of that, whenever she goes back in time, it's always bright. It's always open. There's always so much to do. She gets on like at the beginning of Echo 2, she gets on this horse with uh, Benjamin, which is the the guy she meets there and just goes for like this beautiful horse ride, horseback ride, (laughs) like I know, Um, through this new world that she's just discovered. Like it's just, it's adventure. It's pure adventure and, and, and fantasy. You know, it's what I would do if I went back in time, I would immediately and I knew how to get on a horse. I would immediately get on a horse and just like, experience the the world that that was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it, it's it's really great. And now, did you ha- did you sketch out the entire four part series when you sat down uh, to do the project, or did you start out with the Pemmican Wars and then figure out where you were going to go from there, and then figure out where you were going to f- go from there? Um, well, you know, the history part was laid out conveniently for me. Right. That was written. <laughs> it was all there, you know. Um, I knew I wanted to concentrate on um, the Pemmican Wars, the Red River Resistance, and the Northwest Resistance, because those are the three main insurrections of the, the Métis Nation against the authorities. Um, and then the last one I wanted to tie in, um, but t- like tie in to present day. Um, and that is, um, I mean, so often we talk about the past and the distant past as if somehow 1885, which is when the Northwest resistance happened, has no, we don't know how it connects to this mm-hmm. modern day. But in fact, there's so many things that have happened since then. And one of them, unfortunately, the the big one that happened for the Métis people was the road allowance era, right. which by definition was um, Métis people because of our um, insurrections against the Canadian government because of Louis Riel's actions, because, 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 because anyway, um, we were not deemed to be an indigenous nation worthy of treaty and therefore were denied treaty, which means we were denied a land base, which means that Métis people were um, disenfranchised and, and basically scattered across the Northwest. Much of that, um, much of their settlements were um, they were essentially squatters on what was called road allowance, which was the area kind of set aside for roads um, before the roads were built, and also on crown land, which was almost a form of protest because we believed, um, the Métis people believed themselves worthy of treaty. They wanted a land base. Their land base was stolen from them in 1869. Um, so they very much you know, so much of the settlement on crown land was in a form of protest being like, okay, you're not going to give us something. We're going to take this. Right. It's really ours. Um, and Métis never got treaty and, and much of those road allowance settlements were either violently torn down or, mm-hmm. or, burnt or, um, or, or some sort of, um, there was some sort of government intervention to destroy them. Um, so that's, that's what number four ended up being right. about really bringing us into this modern era, which is completely connected to the 1800s, completely connected with everything that came before it, before it and, and because of it, um, as did the um, many legal battles that, that we've been involved in in the last 30, 40 years. Um, 
So I wanted to tell all of that history as a mm-hmm. connected because it's very much chronological. It's very much because of this, this, because of that, that. Um, and then at the same time, so that, that much I wanted to, I knew broad strokes and then I did a lot of research into getting all the details. Right. And as far as Echo's, like Echo's story is a fictional story um, and her contemporary story, I knew, again, I knew the broad strokes going in. I knew I wanted her to come from a place of loneliness and isolation and I wanted her to find community. You know, I knew I wanted her to be kind of a fish out of water at the beginning mm-hmm. and really find her people. Um, however, she defines that this is very much about her coming into her identity, both her cultural identity, mm-hmm. her gender identity, her identity as a human, what she cares about, what she wants to love, which is the work of young people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's hard work and it's mm-hmm. heavy work and it's so much work. Yeah. Um, so I wanted her to come in. So she and I wanted to leave her in a place of absolute empowerment. I wanted her to know a little bit of all her potential that's inside of her. I'd love to see this kind of series like adopted into school boards across the country (laughs) to see it as part of the the curriculum. Um, How far away are we from that about getting Indigenous history written into into school curriculums like do you have a sense of that I mean you're an artist you're a writer you're not a educational policy person but do do you have a sense of of where we are in 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 that process I mean education in so many parts of this country is under siege in general you know and it's very much something that's happened and I've watched happen through Ontario and Alberta in recent years and very much we're coming into that here in Manitoba now with the new conservative government policies, um, where education as a whole is is forever at risk of cutbacks and and marginalizing teachers and and inhibiting them from doing their jobs. Um, And and one of the first casualties of that is always these extraneous things or these things deemed extraneous. And unfortunately, Indigenous education is, is often seen as something that is not necessary. It's not as integral as math or whatever. Um, because, and I think the problem with that is they think that the common thought is that Indigenous education is for Indigenous kids. And I think that's completely wrong. I think Indigenous education and accurate Indigenous history is integral for all people who live in the place now called Canada. Because we were all lied to in one way or another. Uh, Yeah, it's Canadian history. It is. You know, I, you know, I think that the, the nations, the many, many nations that inhabit and traditionally inhabit this place called now called Canada um, are an essential part of, you know, we're all still here. We're essential part of this country as it is now. And also an understanding of what each nation has gone through Mm -hmm. an accurate, honest, truthful history will lead us all into a better place. Like it will, we just have a better understanding of this. You know, I know that, um, and this is something that um, I'm soapboxing here, but you know, this is something that that's everywhere. And I, and I see it in all sorts of places. I know a lot of new Canadians that come into this country have no absolute, no history and no background on indigenous mm-hmm. anything. Um, and that leads to incredible misunderstandings because most of the newcomers that come into this place are interacting with indigenous people all the time. 
and they'd have, you know, and no one has any understanding of where someone else comes from. And I think that's across the board that we have to really have an honest, we have to take an honest approach to the history of this country. Um, And only in that truth, can we actually honestly go forward and honestly hope to achieve anything that's called what it, what it is. They keep calling reconciliation, reconciliation. Well, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily believe in that and that can be achievable because I think we're still lying, you know, we're, we're not there. So <laughs> that was my rant, but optimistic. I do, see, <laughs> I do see so many strong um, Métis historians coming forward. I'm so excited for all these books and I'm thinking of um, Jean Tellet, who's a, um, um, a lands claim attorney. She just wrote a couple of years ago, The Northwest is My Mother. I, I cited and I think every Echo book is one of um, my sources. Um, well, Echoed three and four because it was it only came out right before three came out um, because I love this book. This is the book I was waiting for my whole life. You know, it's a, it's a truthful history of the Métis people without making, you know, without, you know, typically our, our history has been written by people who think we're less than and we're not capable of, or we don't have agency of our own. Um, and she put that to rest and, and, and made something, something whole and beautiful. Um, and it's the same. There's so many historians that are doing such great work. I'm thinking of Adam Godry. I'm thinking of Chris Anderson. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of, um, oh, there's so many more. And there's so many great books that are written by Métis historians. Um, whereas you know, for the last 200 years, most of our history has been written by non-Métis people. So there's a very different perspective there, yeah. obviously. Um, and much of our history has been written by, you know, East, those in Eastern Canada who, you know, there's been so right. many books about Lurie-Riel that have been written by people that have never visited Winnipeg. So, I mean, it's just like little, like little things like that. Never mind all the, you know, colonial racist <laughs> bullshit that, that also right. accompanies all that. Sorry. For yeah. Sorry. Um, but I am optimistic I do think the work in this area is exciting I'm there's so many books that I'm excited that are coming out I think that we have and we're slowly being given this new perspective of history and I can only speak for my nation because that's what I um, that's what I feel as, as a Métis person reading the Métis history. And I think that hopefully is happening with other nations as well. I see it in different places where we're, we're coming into this place of opportunity where we can, um, publish these books, you know, 20 years ago, these books weren't getting published, you know? Yeah. So, um, I think it's changing. I think in that way it's changing. Hopefully that can trickle down to an education system. Hopefully we'll still have a strong education system <laughs> wherever we are. Fingers um, crossed, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it has to, ch- like, I mean, these things have to change, you mm-hmm. know, and we we can only be on the wrong side of history for so long. History keeps moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, um, and people demand better. You know? So, so- so now with Echo uh, all taken care of, uh, what, what what are you doing next? Do you have another uh, project lined up? Are you working on something now? Something else? Um, yeah, I'm working a little too much these days. I have another novel coming out Hello. in the fall. Yeah, it's um, somewhat a continuation of my, my previous novel, which is called The Break. Um, it's kind of in the same world. 
Um, it's a family story. It's called The Strangers. Very much more, you know, anyone who loves Métis stuff, it's all about Métis family dynamics. And, you know, this particular family is dysfunctional because, you know, that's the kind of, that's how I roll. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, very much this, this family, I wanted to write a family saga. So that's coming out in the fall. And then I have another book that I'm slowly working on and I feel like there's a lot of slow, I like to work slowly and kind of just let um, books kind of, I, I say slowly, but I mean, it feels slow to me because I'm trying to be patient with it, but I seem to be working pretty consistently. So I don't know if it's necessarily slow, it's not stagnant anyway. Um, but it's been really excellent talking to you today. I've learned so much more about Echo. She'll always stay in my mind, always. She's a character now that kind of takes up a little bit of residence in my, in my mind and has really opened me up as a white settler. You know, it's it's um, it's really nice to have her as a guide to Métis history, the sweet thing that she is. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I really, um, I poured a lot of love into Echo, and I love her to bits, so I'm glad that she resonates with, with readers. Yeah. Great. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Talking Up. The program was produced by Terry Carter with original music from the Fortan Electrosonic Laboratory. Be sure to join us again next week for another inspiring edition. And if you're interested in keeping up to date until then, visit us at thecharityreport.com. Thank you.